violence, despair, injustice, and fear prevail. One man comes with a new story of hope, love, and the resilience of the human spirit. Introducing and making his Circle Stories debut, the man, the myth, the legend, writer, master storyteller, visionary, son of the Fae, husband to Brian the Bull, and Circle of Mercy's favorite Irishman, Gareth Higgins. Welcome to the Circle Stories Podcast. In this podcast, we aim to explore the stories within, between, and around the various circles we inhabit in our lives. Hello, uh, welcome to Circle Stories. My guest today is Gareth Higgins. Gareth, how are you? I'm doing good. Glad to be with you. I'm glad to have you here. Um, you are a member of several of my circles and, and increasingly so as we make more circles together um, or as you include me in more of your circles. Um, but I first met you at Circle of Mercy and um, that's where I guess I learned to know you first. I'd like to start with a check-in if that's all right with you. Can you give me a high and a low from, from the past couple of days or past week? Hmm. Hi is, uh, I had a conversation earlier today with three friends about money and the struggles that lots of us have around money meaning too much in our lives and it scares us or not having it scares us more and realizing another level of relationship really matters more than material things because when you have interdependent relationships uh, your material needs are generally taken care of Mm. so that was a high to have that conversation and a low is I uh, I don't like the way lots of people talk about other people and I'm trying not to participate in the way that I don't like lots of people talking about other people by talking about them badly. <laughs> sure. <laughs> hey, I, I struggle. We all struggle with that, but I struggle with the us and them. I, I tend to use that language uh, far too much and I, I I try and catch myself when I do it and recognize that uh, we are all we, and uh, mm-hmm. I need to work on that. But uh, thank you for that. I guess one of the things I'd like to talk to you about, I, I don't know. The, one of the reasons I started this podcast was uh, 531. And mm-hmm. I wanted to highlight the power of the story. Um, mm-hmm. Ever since you started that a couple of years ago, um, I think I missed one. I think I missed mm-hmm. one or two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I would always go there with anticipation and I was always leave there with um, the sense of being full, of being filled up. My spirit would be, would be renewed um, for a while. And uh, I just, I, I wanted to talk to you about the power of story mm-hmm. and what you think we can do with that and how we can use that in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of the point of the podcast and that's sort of what I'm trying to do more um, personally. So I know it's a broad, open-ended question, but yeah. can you talk a little bit about what story is to you and what, yeah. how, you, how you use that? Yeah, well, let me thank you for that. And, um, and thanks for coming to 531 all but one time. <laughs> that means you, you were there more often than I was because I missed it at least twice. Well, um, and hopefully it will be back. Um, yes. I think story is just, it's a word we use for the, the things we, we say about um, how we make sense of our lives from the simplest and most mundane things to the most complex and difficult things. What we say about them is a story. Who I think I am is a story. What my family told me, where I came from, what my politics might be. It's all a story. Now it doesn't mean it's not true. Uh, It does mean that it needs to be, carefully thought about and i i like to ask two questions one is that question is it true 
And if it's not true, is there a truer way that I could tell this same story? And the second story is, am I telling it in the most helpful way? So an example of a story that's, um, uh, uh, that you can ask, is it true? I, you know, I grew up in, in the north of Ireland, and, and we've been living through this long-running civil conflict and peace process. Now, your story about the conflict is going to be shaped by your ethnicity and your religion, where you were brought up, what happened to your family, the degree to which you participated in the conflict, and when you date the beginning of the conflict. If the conflict for you began on the day that you were harmed, that's one starting point. It's a very legitimate place to, to name the starting point. It's very natural for people who maybe feel like the conflict had nothing to do to me until something awful happened. And that may or may not be true. It might, it might be true in your subjective ex experience, but overall, right. my sense is if, if you've lived in Ireland at any point in the last 800 years, you are connected in some way to the conflict. You've probably experienced some at least inconvenience, if not terrible suffering as a result. And you might have been complicit in some of the dynamics that kept the conflict going. Um, so if you date it back in 1172, when uh, British feet first arrived on Irish soil in large numbers, you're going to have a different perspective on at least how the conflict should be solved. Because certainly uh, 1172 and absolutely definitely 400 years later after the Reformation with the plantation of Ireland, if you have any kind of historical literacy, you know that the solution to the Irish problem, as people call it, or the conflict in and about Northern Ireland, as I call it, cannot involve sending all the British people home because mm. they've been there for at least 400 and in some cases uh, descended from people who uh, came there 800 years ago. It'd be like asking white people to leave the land now known as the United States. And while there might be uh, an ethical argument for that, and I could imagine some indigenous people might want to make that argument, although I've never heard any indigenous activists say such a thing. I've actually heard overtures toward reconciliation and amends. You can see the absurdity of telling people you just got to leave. So that's a, uh, maybe a little, perhaps it's too complicated an answer. That's, a, that's an example of a story. We need to be asking ourselves, is it true? And then the question, are we telling it in the most helpful way? We can tell parts of the story in ways that make things worse. Mm. The ending of Romeo and Juliet, uh, when I can't remember which one of them, which one, which one of them is, is has taken the, the sleeping, the sleeping potion. I think he does, that, doesn't he? He's asleep. She, yes, she, she thinks he's dead. I don't she, remember. She, she, and she, then she, she takes her life right. and then he wakes up and takes his life. Right. So her story about what's going on with Romeo is not the most helpful story, you know, clearly she's seeing this person who looks like he's dead and then she tells herself there's only one option she has in response to that and even that is a story mm -hmm. um even if he had been dead there might have been other options and again i don't i don't um use that to to kind of make light of things lots of us are dealing with life and death uh, decisions we will certainly deal with them at some points in our lives for the most part they're not life and, the, and death decisions each day but they do matter they do affect Mm -hmm. whether or not the common good is promoted, whether or not we are uh, healthy, whether or not love is expanding in our lives. I could go on, but I, 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 well, I want to Let me ask more, you this. Do you, do you take those two approaches to a story and apply that to your, your love and, and look at film? You're, yeah. a, you're a movie person. Sure. When you look at a story, do you, when you look at a film, do you look at that story in terms of, was it told the best way? Was it told the least harmful way? Was it, is, is that something you look at when you yeah. look at a film? Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's not just movies. It's, it's, it's news media, literature, music, television, and games. I, I, I think games mm. are stories as well. And uh, first thing I'd want to say is that not every movie is a story. You know, some movies are, are just art objects that mm. uh, it's the image and the sound that's, that's being presented and it's not being, it's not being offered as a story, but it can still promote the common good or mitigate against uh, the, the common good. 
having said that, I mean, there's some, there's some works of art that are just laments by the, the artist who is grieving or suffering in some way, and the viewer maybe won't really know what's going on there. Lex Luthor says in, in, in Superman, in the first Superman film, some people can read War and Peace and come away thinking it's just a simple adventure story. Other people can read a chewing gum wrapper and unlock the secrets of the universe. Mm. So there is a piece here that's to do with, it's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, Having said that, if it was only in the eye of the beholder, we would never make judgments about anything on a larger scale. Um, we would never be able to develop any policies uh, in, in government or any group decisions. For me, the key question is, does this story promote life? Mm, okay. Or does this story promote death? And that doesn't mean that it can't have violence in it. The only question I ask is, is the violence honest? Which means when an act of violence happens in a movie, do you feel the pain that it causes? Do you, it, not only in the victim, but in the perpetrator, do you mm -hmm. feel um, that these things aren't just done and over? They have long-term effects. There was a path leading up to why this person pulled this trigger. There's very few films that do that. There's an extraordinary film called Bulletproof Heart, which is very hard to find. And it's about a hitman who gets hired by a woman to kill her because she has a, a, a serious medical condition and just wants to die. Mm. And the problem is he falls in love with her. And uh, so it becomes really difficult for him uh, to kill her, but it's what she really, really wants. It's a really serious film about what it takes for a human being to be willing to take the life of another. Now, of course, we don't see that a lot, especially not in blockbuster cinema. I want to reserve the possibility that there's some kind of cartoonish violence uh, in, in movies that's just pleasing to the mind, that just excites us. And it may even be a cathartic thing that might make us less violent. You know, if you see more explosions and kind of get off on it, maybe you'd be less likely uh, to have a violent outlook on the world. The jury's out on mm. that. The bigger question for me is, does this story move toward life or away from life? Okay. So cartoonish violence, would that be another way of saying, uh, would, would another way of saying that be gratuitous violence? violence? The I think, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, there, there's probably, yes, they're, they're kind of, thing, sometimes cartoonish violence is, is uh, yeah, I mean, gratuitous doesn't, I guess I've never thought about the literal definition, gratuitous sort of means unearned and pointless, doesn't it? I guess it comes from, it actually comes from grateful and, and grace. I guess like so, it, yeah. yeah, like it's, an, it's hmm. un, unearned, unnecessary. Now, one place in which you could challenge that would be there is some, there's some spectacle on screen that's just extraordinary to look at and it took a lot of creativity to, to put it together. I'm as much for car chases or helicopters flying around uh, as anybody. Um, and again, I don't know how much it matters I'm not saying that, you know, people always say, well, I remember, I think it was Mel Gibson in an interview 20, 25 years ago, disputing the notion that there's any relationship between violence in cinema and violence in the real world by invoking a film from the 50s where I think it's maybe Jimmy Stewart. It might even be somebody as, as innocent as Jimmy Stewart who hits somebody with a shovel, maybe in a mm -hmm. Western, and maybe it's not Jimmy Stewart, but... but uh, I think Mel said something like, I don't recall there being an epidemic of shovel hittings after that movie came out. No, I think that's a, a red herring. It's not actually arguing against the point that's being made. The point that, that I'm making is the overall arc of story responsibility in the world. Who are the heroes? Who are the villains? And how do we defeat villainy? Mm -hmm. Whether mm -hmm. we use a slap across the face or a nuclear bomb it's all a continuum. Of course, nuclear bombs cause more suffering than a slap across the face. But if it's rooted in scapegoating, which is saying evil comes from that person over there, that it's not present with inside me, and that person is personified as evil, and the way we will defeat evil is by becoming evil mm. and destroying this other person, and then we can shake that evil off because actually evil we've just done isn't really evil after all. It's cleansing and redemptive. That's the problem. Whether you make it visually spectacular or not, I'm still interested in the question. 
And if you if you look over time, it's very clear to me there's more empathy for a wider range of people shown in our fiction and our nonfiction entertainment media uh, than we've ever had. Hmm. You know, it's not just the the uh, you know square jawed white cisgender male hero anymore. There's lots of visions of heroism. The challenge is a lot of the times when you get women and people of color and queer people being portrayed as heroes in action films, they're often using the same methodologies that the white hero used to use. So I don't think it's a step in the right direction if it's just a woman who drops the nuclear bomb on the bad guy. (laughs) It's also not honest because um, it's statistically the case that most of the violence in in the world is not done by women. That that women are less violent, and that uh, when women are in leadership, violence reduces. I think you get the point. The the, the issues about the arc of the story, as much if not more so than the actual graphic nature of the violence. In mm-hmm. fact, graphic violence can be, I imagine, can be a turnoff to people who might participate in violence. The more graphic it is and gra- it's gra in graphic and gra in gratuitous mm. they both come from the same place mm. but one might be more uh, morally helpful than the other have you in your long watching and, and knowledge of film have you seen a have you seen the villain become more complex in mm. that regard was was the villain of mm. of the old movies always evil and never mm. had any kind of conflict with mm. him that you saw and, and now that you're seeing maybe a more complex villain oh that it's i mean that's such an interesting question i think it's such a really important thing to research i only have anecdotal mm-hmm. research on it and i but i do have a i do have a google spreadsheet that i've been playing with for a, a, a while about um, i didn't know this <laughs> yeah about the uh the 500 top grossing films at the u.s box office adjusted for inflation so you'll see the films that were most popular at the time and uh-huh. to this day gone with the wind is still the highest grossing film adjusted for inflation of all time wow and i was looking at them and kind of trying to create a little continuum of a, a, a range beginning with you know this movie totally supports the myth of redemptive violence the idea that violence redeems things and that we that good guys can kill bad guys with impunity and that actually makes things better and that it's weak to try anything other than total no quarter uh, to coin a phrase uh, so that's on one end of the continuum and then the other end of the continuum is literally a film like Gandhi which is which is explicitly about overcoming the myth of redemptive violence through creative nonviolence, and I would, you know, I haven't finished that research yet. Um, what I what I can say is that about a hundred of those top five hundred films, it surprised me that that many did not fully endorse the myth of redemptive violence. That were at least questioning it in some mm-hmm. way. It also interested me. Some films on that list were not action films or big historical epics. Kramer versus Kramer. The last mm-hmm. time I looked at the list, Kramer versus Kramer, which is a film about the breakdown of a marriage and custody proceedings, it's in the top 500 uh, grossing films adjusted for inflation. And it's a film that does actually challenge the myth of redemptive violence, because while there is no physical violence in that film, there is a scene where Dustin Hoffman smashes a glass uh, against the floor. Um, but there's no, there's no physical violence between two human beings. There is the violence and the aggression of trying to of trying to defeat the other person, trying to take something from them, mm-hmm. and don't want to spoil it. But the, let's just say the film does not resolve things with one person winning and the other person losing. The film resolves things in a way that I think the broken marriage between American people right now needs to be resolved, hmm. which is where everyone can get something with integrity without vulnerable people losing in the hmm. end. No, you asked, are villains more complex over time? I, my gut feeling is yes, actually. My gut feeling is yes, and that's because everything's more complex over time. Mm. And the one that means psychology understands more than it has ever understood. Or at least, let's just say the wisest psychologists understand more today uh, than the wisest psychologists of the past, just the same as the wisest, the wisest or the, the most knowledgeable biologists understand more today than the most knowledgeable biologists of 50 years ago. Um, another element in that would be the, the production code that was 
initiated in Hollywood in the 30s that basically controlled what you could put on screen. You couldn't have profanity. You couldn't have nudity. Mm. And bad guys were not allowed to win. And this, this, this code existed from, I think, around 19, the, the, the early 30s until the mid-60s when it just kind of had died by then. Alfred Hitchcock's film Vertigo had to include the bad guy getting uh, taken away in handcuffs, uh, even though that would not have been what was in Hitchcock's heart. Hitchcock would have wanted to say bad guys sometimes get away with it. Uh, today, you don't have to do that. So it is more complex about the nature of, of how justice doesn't operate. And if you look like at a film like The Silence of the Lambs, that film is overshadowed by a complex portrayal of someone doing terribly evil things, but you kind of like him Yeah. in the end. It's not the most psychologically astute or noble film there, there's ever been. Um, one other example comes to mind is a Disney uh, animated film from a couple of years ago called Big Hero 6, where the bad guy is shown to have actual, totally understandable motivation for doing what he's doing in that his daughter is lost inside a computer program. Mm. And he thinks the only way that he can get her out is by doing these nefarious things. And also, it's, it was intriguing to me. It was a film in which it doesn't end with the bad guy being killed. It ends with the bad guy being held accountable and the I think the daughter getting freed. When six years of television can be devoted to Breaking Bad, which is all about a good guy turning bad, we're seeing complexity there. Now, what I would have much preferred is to have seen six years of television devoted to a bad guy turning good. Hmm. That's the story arc I'm most interested in. The same as the story of Northern Ireland. We need to, it's, it's not that, non, that creative nonviolence has been tried and, and shown to fail. It's that when we try it, we don't talk about it enough and we don't talk about it in compelling ways. And we haven't yet found a way to convince mainstream news media outlets to recognize that if it bleeds, it leads. Maybe a good economic model if you believe that economics is all about maximizing profit for the shareholder. But if you believe that economics is a tool through which you should serve the common good, it bleeds, it leads, is a lie that will ultimately hurt you yeah. as well as everybody else. So, and, you know, there's some changes happening there. The main thing is we need to find ways to tell the stories of creative nonviolence in as spellbinding a way as we currently tell stories of fearful spectacle. It's interesting that you bring up the Hitchcock film that ended with the villain being led, uh, led off in handcuffs. The um, Disney film where the villain wasn't killed, but brought to justice. That was always something that frustrated the heck out of me mm -hmm. growing up is seeing all these movies where justice was the dead guy, the dead bad guy at the end. That was justice. Whereas I was always like, oh, no, 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 keep him alive because I'd like to see him go to trial and, and rot in jail for the rest. You know, it's like I, that was the story I wanted to see was, you know, but of course that doesn't, that didn't sell movies. That didn't. That wasn't what everybody else wanted to see, apparently. But I always wanted to see the bad guy, like, tried and convicted. And, <laughs> you know? Well, I want to see a film about, you know, I know you do, so you want to see a film about, in which they, they're tried and convicted and a restorative justice outcome oh, is, yes, yes. Is, is put into place. Um, I just want to see films that are proportionately more like real life. And, mm. you know, that there are more films being made today than ever before. They're being... They're being made available on more platforms than ever before. The big blockbuster ones are addicted to this kind of violence thing. But even the most recent Avengers film made a point of beginning uh, with a pro-LGBT statement uh, as, as, as just a, a beautiful little subtle aside. And they weren't trying to hide it. They were just trying to utterly mainstream same-sex relationships uh, in a church basement five years after half the population, half the, of living beings on, on, on earth have been killed. There's a That's support fun. group happening. Mm -hmm. It's the second scene of the last Avengers movie. And there's a guy talking in a support group circle about going on a date and how I find it difficult to go on dates because of the trauma that had happened to the whole world. And then he, he just mentions that he was on a date with another man. And it's not, it's not highlighted. It's not questioned. It's just there. 
and so even which is wonderful uh, you, you know i think that's a that's a wonderful sign of the of the evolution of love and the evolution of of uh compassion and, and what peter singer calls the expanding circle of sympathy where more humans care about more different kinds of humans than than humans at the center of power have ever cared about before hmm. and the center of power is shifting uh, and a lot of that's to do with the internet and the way that many of us it, it, there's this weird paradox many of us feel like we have less control over our own lives than we've ever had but in some respects we have more control than anybody has ever had uh, we all have publishing companies in our pockets the literal device that, that we can publish on and we're all able to be connected across electronic lines with with a vast range of people the, the reason i'm bringing up the avengers thing is that you, you get this really positive empathetic thing in the midst of a film that also has a lot of killing well it. yeah and, and again a complex uh, villain i mean thanos is uh, the, thanos at least has a motivation yes yes <laughs> the uh i don't remember if it was 2017 or 2018 but you debuted a film um, I don't remember. Set in Oakland. Blind spotting. Yes, yes. Uh, you said I like movies that 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 show real life. Mm. Um, when I watched that one, um, that's what I got out. I mean, it it didn't it didn't strike me as a overproduced story. Mm. You know that we we follow this guy through his through a couple of days of his life or a week or whatever and uh, that seemed real life to me i don't know if it if it did to you too but that that's the yeah, one that I, came to mind when you said that and you know, yeah i mean that's a film about um uh, a black guy and a white guy who've been friends for a long time and the white guy likes to think that hey we're buddies so we're equal mm -hmm. and the black guy's experience proves that isn't true uh it's it's also a film that has the tremendous vibrancy about it it's funny, it's gripping, it's thrilling. There's no cathartic violence. Mm -mm. And um, it has one of my favorite endings in recent years because it doesn't try to tie things up and pretend that at the end of a film narrative, life is now, everything's perfect and it's all over. It's also, I mean, Kramer versus Kramer is very like that as well. Mm. Kramer versus Kramer literally ends with somebody getting into an elevator and the elevator door closing. And it's not the end of the story, it's the mm. end of the film but it's yeah. not the end of the story and the filmmakers trust you enough to know these people are going to live on. And the question for you is going to be how should I live in the light of this story that I have just seen? Is there something I would like to change? Is there, is there a way in which I have felt heard or seen by these people doing this? Is there something I uh, need to make amends for? Is there something I want to avoid? And a film that, that allows you to know, respects you enough to validate your knowledge. Your life did not begin when you woke up this morning. It's not gonna, it, it most likely it's not gonna end when you go to sleep tonight. Right. Um, Do you, are there people in your lives where, uh, that uh, can't stand movies that don't wrap up all tidily and <laughs> there are in my life. <laughs> Just saying. Um, there is a film called Limbo by John Sayles. Uh, it came out in 1999. I think it's the best American film of the 90s. And uh, it it has probably the least rappy-uppy ending of maybe of any movie um, with, I mean, there's a quite a f famous movie from the early 70s called Two Lane Blacktop in which the film literally burns up uh, uh, in the, like the image, it, it, it's, it's made to look like the film is burning up in the projector because the story has nowhere else to go. But this is not like that. Lim Limbo, Limbo has a very... Uh, ambiguous ending and the film is literally called limbo so you can't <laughs> really blame the filmmaker for not warning you well you kind of knew what you were getting into you know? and I, yeah and i remember have you seen it no so i mean it's really an extraordinary film with mary elizabeth mastrantonio and david strathairn and chris christopherson set in alaska and um when it ended the first time i saw i saw it in chicago when it ended and it just ends in the most brilliantly ambiguous way somebody sitting a couple of rows in front of me just started shouting at the screen <laughs> you you know you're kidding i can't believe this and i wanted to say to them the movie's called limbo <laughs> <laughs> It's about our life is like that. Which part didn't you understand when you bought the ticket? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> let's take a break. Uh, let's hear from David Lamont, a song called Crawl Inside. Mm. 
crawl inside your head Gonna move a few things around You got your furniture up against the doors It's bound to be slowing you down You've been getting in your own way And that's a silly thing to do Gonna crawl inside your head And make it work a little better for you Gonna crawl inside 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 your heart Gonna bring a whole bunch of paint Cause from the outside it's so beautiful And from the inside it just ain't And I know this will be hard for you But your graffiti's gotta go Gonna crawl inside your heart So you can see what we all know I'm gonna crawl inside I'm gonna crawl inside This garbage makes you feel the way you feel I mean you got junk in your refrigerator That's way, way overdue I'm gonna crawl inside your soul And give you something that's good for you I'm gonna crawl inside I'm gonna crawl inside I'm gonna crawl inside And then when we've got the dishes washed, soaked the brushes in turpentine I was wondering if you might have a minute to help me work on my Gonna crawl inside Gonna crawl inside Gonna crawl inside a favorite genre or are you just pretty uh, across the board? Uh, yeah yeah i think i like small dramas i like small what's, dramas. what's a small drama small drama would be um a film like uh, smoke which is a movie about a cigar shop in, in brooklyn and all the people who who live around it and interact with the the community in it or the fisher king which i often think is my favorite film which is a film about uh, recovering from trauma and, and and allowing yourself to be loved uh, in a in a circle of equally broken people, who I mean the good thing about about being human is that often y- you can find people who have experienced brokenness like you have, mm. but we're not all broken at the same rate at the same time. You know that's a problem okay. if you find that all your friends are equally broken at the same rate at the same time. You need to kind of mix it, season season that group of friends with a, with a ratio of three to one uh, of of people who are at a, who are at a different stage of their brokenness. <laughs> um, and uh, I, you know, I like I like a lot of European films that are smaller in terms of their locations and the numbers of characters, but big on the inside. Because I, I truly think that to be a human being is enormous. It's way, mm. way bigger than most of us think. And it's, it's e- like there are people we could think of who, who um, project something big on the world stage. They're even smaller than people who've got a healthy ego and aren't projecting anything publicly. But to be a human is even bigger than the biggest projection that the, that the biggest ego could project the problem the, the challenge for those of us who, who struggle with big egos is the big ego is not the path 
Uh, mm. Discover the enormity of being human. I mean, to, 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 to be human means to literally be made from the stars, from the dust of the stars. The cosmos lives inside us. And to go back to your very first question, we are living a story. I am living a story that is, that is um, infinitely large. So are you. To, to be just a person is a, it's a silly way to put it because like you're you're a co-creator with the divine of the story of what's going to happen next and the vast majority of us have never been initiated into thinking like that yeah. you know to, to 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 wake up in the morning and recognize the chances of the sperm and the ova that came together to make me are so vanishingly small i am extraordinarily special not in relation to other human beings but in relation to anything else, mm -hmm. <laughs> any other thing that has ever existed, yeah. like the chances that I even exist are vanishingly small. And I'm living on this spinning sphere and there's a sun in the sky and there's earth underneath my feet and there's other people to get to know and try and serve the common good together. What more do you need? What, how, how, how much higher could your ambition be? You know, and the, this is why I think it's like, it's, it's mostly a joke, but it's, it's less funny when it has seriously negative impacts that um, people, people who have wrapped up their egos with their ambition and they think things like building a rocket to the moon is spectacular or running a country is spectacular. Well, if you're not doing it from a place of service for the common good, you might as well just be sitting in a muddy puddle. You, you, that's really what you might as well be doing with your life because then at least you'd have the chance to meditate. Um, <laughs> You know, but and you're not going to hurt anybody else. You're not going to hurt anybody else to remark upon the beauty of a bird uh, in the tree, or to um, help somebody who's fallen on the ground pick themselves up, or to give a glass of cold water to a stranger, or to receive a glass of cold water from someone who wants to give one to you. Mm -hmm. These are far, far, far bigger than the things that win Nobel prizes or, or Pulitzers. You know, I tend to think there, there clearly are people who've lived honorable lives of service who coincidentally were given Nobel Prizes and Pulitzers, but that's not the mark of who they are. The mark of who they are is that they dedicated themselves to uh, becoming individu properly individuated within an ecosystem of other souls, finding their proper place, and their proper place is through service. Hmm. Can we go back to the small drama for a second? You mean we, we're going to get away from platonic philosophy and, <laughs> and th things I understand not very well? <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> I enjoy that, but you Good know, idea. let me let me ask you this: mm -hmm. Is one of the draws for you um, about a small drama is that it's it, it by its very nature it has to be story intensive? I would think. I would think it has to be. I mean, if you're taking if everything's taking place in a barber shop or. What did you, what did you, what was your example? Cigar store. Cigar store. Or um, I don't know if I haven't seen the room, but wasn't there a movie called the room or something? Or? Uh, there are, there's a movie called the room and there's a movie called room and they're both very different. Are the, they small drama? Uh, room is a small drama. Okay. Room it's is just, a small drama about big things. It just know. seems to me that the acting, the, if there's dialogue, the dialogue, the, the, the thing that makes those movies is the story. You don't have a lot of explosions. You don't have a lot of what draws yeah. you to those. Um, William Hurt plays a writer in smoke who buys little cigarillos, lives in a sweaty Brooklyn apartment with, with very little air conditioning windows open, doesn't dress for dinner, <laughs> has a tragedy in his past, which means it's in his present too. Well, I guess those, and, those movies could, have flashbacks that include all those things is that right yeah yeah Sometimes, but yeah. but it's how is it treated is it treated to exploit it or is it treated to 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 give you necessary information for you to understand right. what's going on so i love i i watched that character and I, I saw the film first 25 years ago and it was one uh one of the reasons i wanted to be a writer now i don't the writing bug was already in me but it's mm. more like a validation of that but i also felt that in the killing fields which is about a uh, a Cambodian man who uh, has to make his way through torturous danger while a New York Times journalist is mm -hmm. kind of trying to, to do what he can to help him from the outside. Sam Waterston played that that journalist and Hange Singor played the uh, the Cambodian man. I, I was very attracted to the writer, uh, and it, but it has a very romanticized view of what writers are, you know, especially mm -hmm. New York Times writers. 
nice offices and skyscrapers on the phone with a typewriter. But um, I just feel seen, you know, and it's like the more spectacular, the more visually spectacular the film is, the harder it is for me to feel seen. Like I don't feel I don't feel seen by any of the Avengers. I feel seen by the guy in the church basement at the Mm -hmm. support Mm -hmm. group. Now I feel seen when I watch Ad Astra, which is an amazing science fiction epic with Brad Pitt that James Gray made that has uh, that uses its special effects and its epic scope to tell you something about the inside of a human soul. Hmm. It's not just there to to display its spectacle. It's there to remind you that even if you went as far as Neptune, you're never going to be able to escape yourself. But the good news is what you think is yourself may actually be like the big bank vault safe that is surrounding yourself and and if you you might need to go to neptune in order to find the combination to that safe so you can finally open it and get in touch with this beautiful safe secure pure love thing inside you i think that's on my to watch list i haven't watched oh, it yet but... please to watch it okay please to watch it i think i've seen it five times <laughs> what's your favorite uh, character william hurt line i can tell you mine if you like but... There, oh, well, you tell me yours. I, 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 I do have an answer. but He went out with a bang, not a whimper, from uh, Big Chill. Oh, from the Big Chill. He's uh, in the back of the Yes, he did. There. He did go out with a bang, not a whimper. Anyway. So it's not actually a line. There's a scene in Smoke where he's looking through a scrapbook of photographs with Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel takes a photograph every morning at the same time from the same place, right outside his, um, his cigar store. And, and William Hurt's kind of flicking through them. And... Um, he says, they're all the same. And Harvey Keitel says, you're looking at them too fast. Uh, hmm. um, favorite Will, uh, Robin Williams movie? Well, it's The Fisher King. Is it? Um, Is that, and, do you think that's his best performance as well? Um, I, think, I, mean, I think it kind of makes the best use of his gifts. I do love him in Dead Poets Society mm. as well because he's so still mm. in that film. He lets out his little crazy sometimes, but he does. He does. I've, I've, I did read a book that kind of that raised a question about that poet society for me that I've never been able to shake, and that is if he is so committed to carpe diem, to seizing the day, why has he not gone to London to be with the woman he's in love with? Mm. And that that's a really intriguing question. It's also a question about te- people who have. T- I I, th- I think there's a totally honourable answer to that, and that is. He has chosen to teach people. Hmm. This is where he can be best used. And there are plenty of people who've chosen to teach. There's people who teach writing who may actually be better writers than the most successful writers. Hmm. But for some reason, lack of serendipity or because they feel the they feel the call to teach more than they feel the call to write. So I don't do, you know, this ugly cliche that, you know, those those who can do, those who can't teach is just a it's a no terrible lie and deeply offensive mm-hmm. um, teaching is difficult in fact it, it may actually be th- those who can teach because teaching is one of the most important and noble things and we're all doing it we're all doing it the question mm-hmm. is are you doing it from a shadow or from the light there's plenty of people on television who are teaching from the shadow and they're totally unconscious or worse they don't care they don't yeah. care and and then there's plenty of there's plenty of people teaching from the light who don't even know <laughs> don't even know and if you were to tell them hey, you realize you've taught me you've influenced me they'd be surprised yeah you know we went through an exercise in our book group a couple of weeks ago where we were told to envision the people that in our lives that have that have influenced us and uh-huh. several several teachers yes and professors uh, came to mind for me yeah so yeah. i i value the teachers in my life Back to Dead Poets, the uh, the scene that always sticks out for me is the um, the Walt Whitman lesson, mm-hmm. the barbaric yawp barbaric that he tries to get uh, Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke to and and Ethan Hawke in that is is just downright amazing as well. Mm-hmm. I, I, I read, read a nice story about the making of that film lately. Peter Weir, the Australian director, who made it, a wonderful director who makes made very few films, and it appears that he's finished uh, mm. with making films. Unfortunately. Um, he, you know, a lot of those were first-time actors. It was their first time on a film set. They're all playing mid-teens. And, yeah. Um, that roll camera and action and cut were intimidating. So 
um, what Peter Weir would do, I think, was he would have the camera roll and then he would have a scrunched up piece of paper and just throw it at the head of one of the young actors. And if it hit them on the head, they knew it was, it, they had to, they started the scene <laughs> and it felt, nice. and it, it took away their nerves. Huh? Yeah. Um, Robert Sean Leonard. Is that Robert Sean Leonard and Josh yeah. Charles, who, who ended up having a really successful career in television. Who, what did he play? Which he one played an, I think he, he kind of played the, he played the the member of the Dead Poet Society who ended up being kind of most into the beat poetry and and um, oh okay I think okay. he also didn't he have the girlfriend mm-hmm. and, yeah yeah okay yeah I I love that movie I love him in that movie yeah mm-hmm. Robin Williams oh I wanted to give you a chance to um, tell us about the groups that you're starting mm. yeah thank you for that we're st- we're starting an online course platform where we want to provide transformative learning experiences for people. And what we mean by transformative is it's not just about knowledge, facts, and data. It's about wisdom and wisdom learned in community. So it's where your head and your heart meet and where you can learn things that will actually help you change your own life for the better and to do so in connection with other people who feel similarly. The first five courses are beginning, we're rolling them out September, October, November. This year, one's called Black Movies, American Lives which is exactly what it sounds like. It's trying to shift the focus away from white heroes, white protagonists, and also from the tendency in American cinema to have black characters either be sidekicks, criminals, or suffering. Mm. And we're we're gonna do um, five sessions with my friend Melvin Bray, who's a, a black storyteller and transformative activist in Atlanta. We have a course with Kathleen Norris, the great contemplative writer, although she would, she would resist being called great Let's just call her the beloved contemplative writer called It's a Beautiful Day and uh, A Whole Life in Five Movies, taking movies that chart the life cycle from birth through to death. Hmm. And just exploring what, what do these stories mean uh, for us. Those are the two courses that are connected to movies. James McCleary, who some people will know from the documentary called The Work. He's a, a man who's pioneered transformative men's work in prisons hmm. among incarcerated men. Uh, to help them uh, if if they are indeed uh, people who have committed acts of violence and so forth to to own what they've done to to repair if they can and whether or not they've committed acts of violence to become men of integrity people of integrity and honor and accountability and um, working in partnership with men who are not incarcerated everyone benefits we're going to teach a course called who you really are uh, using the idea that each human being has different enthusiasms and appetites inside them that can be illustrated by reference to mythic archetypes, uh, kings and queens, warriors, magicians, lovers. How do we feel? How do we make decisions? How do we say no? What are we really here for? James is a, a deep mentor, and I'm delighted to be doing this course with him. Michelle LeBaron, who's a Canadian a uh, world-renowned conflict resolution teacher is going to do a course on an introduction to uh, creative conflict transformation. And then the fifth course, uh, which also begins uh, the first week we're doing these, the week of the 14th of September, Brian Ammons, my uh, husband and partner in work, and Noah Hepler, who was just featured in the new season of Queer Eye on Netflix, if, if people listening saw Queer Eye. Noah is the minister who uh, was the focus of the first episode of season five. They're going to teach a course called Queer Christianity. It's a gorgeous theological journey. And the point of that course is it's really speaking to two groups of people. One is uh, LGBTQ plus people who are interested in Christianity and spirituality, maybe already deeply committed, connected, maybe not most likely have had negative experiences uh, Mm -hmm. of of exile and and homophobia within the church. This is the other side of that. This is the way of reading scripture and the history of the church that's totally pro-LGBT and in fact talks about the gifts that queer people have for Christianity. And the second group of people is straight people who want to learn more about how to be allies toward LGBTQ people. Those are the first five courses and uh, we'll be running more as time uh, goes on. You can do one or more of those courses. Uh, and I'll, I'll put um, the information in, in the show notes, but how yeah. can people find that? Uh, they go to theporchcourses.com. Okay. And if they aren't uh, 
if they haven't signed up for email, they should do that too. I'd welcome that. <laughs> I thought I'd get that in seated. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, um, there's, yeah, there's at least three of those that I, I are, are they going to, are they going to be live and then recorded? And yeah. The idea that you is can that, access that, them anytime. So an, another special piece about it is that each of the courses is going to be five sessions only. So five sessions on zoom once a week for five weeks and the courses start. Most of the courses aren't running at the same time. There might be a little bit of overlap so that, you know, you could actually do all five courses, but uh, you can attend the course live whenever mm -hmm. the, the call happens or it'll be recorded. You can watch it later. And then there's also an option for folks to opt into small groups that will meet separately from when the whole course meets for people who want to go a bit deeper. So some people will join the course as it happens. Some people will pile up the recordings and watch them uh, on a rainy day. Right. I imagine for most people, it'll be somewhere in between. You'll attend some of the live and watch some of the recordings. Right, right. Oh, sounds wonderful. Mm, That's something we be. need right now. So, Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's, it's You're so cool. welcome, Carl. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on things you heard in the episode, please check out our show notes at circlestories.org. There you will also find archived episodes and can subscribe to, comment on, and review the podcast. Break music provided with permission by David Lamott. Find out more about David and browse his catalog at davidlamott.com. Show music, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Music by Charles H. Gabriel. Arrangement by Randa Kirschbaum and performed by Jennifer Wilson. Any sound effects used in the episode are attributed and used under Creative Commons license details available in the show notes. C.S. Lewis said, The next best thing to being wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are. <laughs>